Hey, thank you so much for joining with us wherever you are and whomever you are with. We're grateful for the opportunity to gather in this way. If you're looking to get more connected, uh, planted here at Life Church, we'd encourage you to find or form a community group. If, if you need help doing that, just email us at info at lifechurchvirginia.com. We'll do everything we can to get you planted uh, so that vibrant transformation and community can be yours as we continue to open the scriptures, uh, pray for one another, and follow Jesus in this season. As well, I wanna thank you, church, for your financial generosity over the course of this season. If you're looking for an opportunity to give, you can give online any time of the day. Uh, you can write a check or uh, send your uh, offering and tie to the church address, or you can swing by the church office Tuesday through Thursday, 10 to two o'clock. Uh, we're grateful for your financial investment and really your investment of every shape and form. We're grateful to do church and do life with you all. This past Thursday evening, we had a church conversation surrounding uh, what we're leaning into. We, we've discovered community groups in the shadow of a pandemic, but now we are determining, as the season shifts for us, we are determining to lean into community groups, not because of the pandemic, but because of the prosperity it has brought to people's souls. We've heard story after story of personal transformation, of realizations that there's vibrant community to be had. People are letting themselves be known. People are getting to know others. And in the course of all of it, we have found all of us are getting to know God. So we would encourage you again, lean into the community group dynamic. Let us help you get planted in one. And we're gonna to continue to communicate what our plans are gonna look like in the future here at Life Church. As far as future plans, this upcoming Tuesday, we're gonna have a heart and soul gathering Tuesday evening from seven to eight at the church. We're gonna talk about the, the habits, the ways, the practices of Jesus occasionally on these Tuesday evenings, heart and soul nights. Uh, this upcoming Tuesday, we're gonna be talking about conversing, the habit and the practice of conversing, how to talk with one another as we see how Jesus talks to us and talks to others. Of course, mark your calendars. Easter Sundays are coming, uh, but also we're gonna have a Monday Thursday gathering here at the church, uh, and we're gonna have a Good Friday gathering here at the church as well. So that's Thursday, April 1st, and Thursday, April 2nd, leading up to Easter Sunday. All right, we're continuing our stories series. If you're taking notes and like titles, knowing titles, the, the title of our conversation today is a story about a widow story about a widow, and we're taking from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8 is our passage. Now, mind you, Jesus is answering a question that was posed to him in Luke chapter 17. We often forget that the whole of the scripture is connected. It's not just broken down into chapters and verses because those are these little moments that should be seen together, but it's the whole of the scripture. And so Jesus is speaking here in Luke chapter 18, but he's answering the question, which we'll speak to in a little bit from Luke chapter 17. In chapter 18, Jesus says, or he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. They ought always to pray and not lose heart. He, Jesus said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Sounds like a great guy. 
And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your spirit. We thank you that your word declares where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in the midst of them. And so as we are ourselves gathered together, we welcome your presence. We choose right now to be aware of your spirit, your presence here with us. And we give you these moments. God, we just ask that you use them. We make ourselves available to be molded, shaped, and made into your image. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, there, there are lots of moments in the scriptures. Uh, there are lots of outliers in the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, which foreshadows the arrival, the presence, and the person of Jesus Christ, the example of Jesus. Uh, some of those moments and outliers, yes, they depict God in anger. Even uh, Jesus throws some tables in one instance. And, and absolutely, there are some mind-bending narratives of God's people victoriously slaughtering uh, the evil, uh, the pagan, the, the other thans. With the advent of Jesus, though, and his choosing, his exemplification to descend, submit, not to control or coerce, but to send and to submit, pinnacling at Golgotha in death towards resurrection, we are introduced to thicker themes. Apart from outliers and moments, we are introduced in the person of Jesus to thick themes of love, mercy, grace, extended forgiveness to others, even suffering, not as something showing wrong in our lives, but suffering that somehow makes an otherworldly sense. To be clear, I'm not suggesting life with Christ, walking in his ways causes everything to make sense. No, (laughs) I'm not saying that at all, not even a bit, because it does not do that. I hope through the course of this series, I haven't conveyed or encouraged you all through the reading of these parables uh, to search for the sense, what makes sense. What we hope we've all leaned into is that we're seeking out God's spirit. Jesus tells stories to us, not to entertain us, but to include us, to understand that his gospel is not one of presentation, but of one of participation. With regards to these thicker themes that I mentioned, instead of the earthly outliers, because that's the fact of the matter, church. We often gravitate towards the earthly outliers, the moments. Well, Jesus got angry. Jesus threw tables. I'm afforded anger myself. (laughs) And we do that. We gravitate towards those things. We gravitate towards the lostness component, which Jesus speaks to a lot, also because we resonate with that. Jesus also speaks to a thick theme of entreating and praying. When things are good, when things are not working out, when things are in a valley, top, valley experience or a mountaintop experience. I would suggest we're drawn to lostness because we're inundated by it. We, we, we know it. We're surrounded by it. And yet we are designed for intimacy and awareness of God's spirit, which is made prevalent more times than not through times of prayer. And when I speak of prayer, I don't speak of it in some abstract or disconnected from actual life lived, 
but I speak of it mixed in the earthiness of our circumstances. And this is reflected in the stories that Jesus tells. Prayer, as Jesus speaks of it, is not in this other world circumstance, but he draws it into hungers and justices and moments, the earthiness of people's lives. And there's this common thread, and we spoke to prayer in an earlier parable in Luke chapter 11, but there's this persistence. There's the component and the common thread of persistence, this thicker theme when you talk about prayer that Jesus drills down on of just do it again and again and again. There's a persistence. How many of you parents understand the concept of persistence because your child asked you 43 times, what are we having for dinner before they got out of bed? And they're asking to go to Chick-fil-A 77 times. They ask for this, they ask for that, and they generally just know how to wear us down. But we see this, this persistence component in Luke chapter 11, as Jesus is speaking to the praying, in verse 8 in Luke's gospel, chapter 11, he says, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, because he keeps coming, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. He goes on, Jesus, the famous passage, scripture, and I tell you, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock. Come again, come again, come again, come again. And we see it in our passage this morning that we read, Luke's gospel, chapter 18. Though I neither fear God nor respect man, this is the voice of the unrighteous judge. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. And Jesus reiterates, hear what the unrighteous says, and will not give justice to his elect who cried him day and night. Will he delay long over them? This reality of coming back persistently. We, we have in our previous prayer story, the parable that Jesus speaks to in Luke chapter 11, a father dynamic, a friend dynamic. Jesus uses those two uh, intimate relationships. Here in Luke chapter 18, there is no such familiarity. It's actually exactly the opposite. We have a widow and we have a wicked or at very least an unrighteous, unruly judge. So there's no added bridge of relationship like there is in Luke chapter 11 where there's a friend dynamic or there's a father-son dynamic. No, there's the widow and there's the wicked judge. While there's no affection or known acquaintance of these two uh, towards one another, in this parable, Jesus is using a deep-seated relationship nonetheless. Widows are some of the most vulnerable people in Jewish society. The other two, by the way, are foreigners and orphans. You hear this refrain, this holy trinity spoken of throughout the scriptures of the widow, the foreigner, and the orphan. The widow, the foreigner, and the orphan come up time and time again in the Old Testament and the New Testament. These are those who are least. These are those who are the most vulnerable. And so the Jewish customs, their laws were set about to protect the widow, the foreigner, and the orphan. And it would be this judge, this wicked judge, who is supposed to enforce said laws for this widow. When the widow comes asking, she's not saying because of an emotional need. She's not saying because she thinks she's due. But the whole of their culture, their society, creation as they see it, is set up to keep her protected, to make sure that which is most vulnerable is cared for. 
I think it's a moment, too, where Jesus is giving homage to the reality that we are all to be painted in neighborly colors. We are not separate from one another, whether we're friends, family, or widow and wicked judge, but we are neighborly towards one another. We truly belong to each other just as much as we belong to God. So though these two don't know one another personally, they may not be on a first name basis like friends or a father and son would. They are inextricably associated. Let me offer this commentary. Jesus is not speaking of this unruly, gruff judge to illustrate God is gruff and can't be bothered. The judge is absolutely not a depiction of God. And that's not just my opinion. He says not once but twice, that he does not fear God nor respect man. This judge is unrighteous. Jesus draws a stark line and communicates, hey, the judge in this story is not a depiction of the judge of creation. The judge is the backdrop to demonstrate the thick theme and tool of persistence. Peterson writes in his book, Tell It Slant, We have learned by experience that God's silence in the face of our prayers is not due to some inadequacy on our part, some technical glitch in the way we pray that can be fixed if we can just get our hands on the right prayer manual. God's silence is a common and repeated experience among all who pray. If there's anything like an official prayer book for the prayer and for how to pray, it is the Psalms. And Psalms is riddled with silence, with questions, with musings and wonderings. Just a few examples. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 13, verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? you might be resonating in yourself with some of the things that I'm reading or I have read in terms of the prayers, these riddled moments with silence and pain. Too often we make prayer about the success or getting what we want, but there's so much more depth and richness to it. Psalm 22, verses one and two. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words, by the way, that Jesus himself prayed and used. Why are you so far from helping me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. Psalm 44, verses 23 and 24. Rouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake, do not cast us off forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Psalm 74, verse 10. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Psalm 77, verses seven through nine. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? I mean, come on, church. These are honest prayers. These are recorded in the scriptures for us to see, feel, and I believe also walk into ourselves. Give place to that as well in our heart and soul. I'm continuing, there's more. Psalm 79, verse 5. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Psalm 90, verse 13. Turn, O Lord, how long? 
Peterson sums up in his book. Why, why, why? How long, how long, how long? People who pray know what it is like to hear nothing in response. People who pray don't get what they ask for when they ask for it. People who pray ask how long and why a lot. So you might be wondering, well then what's the point? Why pray? I remember coming to realizations in my own life early on in marriage. I didn't know why I got married. Nobody really asked me that question. I I loved Tanya. I was drawn to her. And uh, at the end of the day, marriage was a road towards intimacy. But marriage is not about physical intimacy. Can I get an amen from all the married people in the house? (laughs) It's not about one simple act or one mode of life, but it's also recognizing I'm linking my life with you. I'm choosing to build with you. I'm choosing to work for you. I'm choosing to die to myself for you. This is why we get married. Why do we have kids? Because we want less money, (laughs) because we want less time, uh, because maybe we have this thing in the back of our heads that like children will complete us, just like we think a spouse will complete us. Nothing is further from the truth, church. Why do we have kids? So that they'll make us happy? Mm, No, there are exceedingly, incredibly deep, wonderful moments of joy that nothing in this world can give me more than a smile for Mesa, more than Jude coming up and giving me a hug for no reason. For Zoe, just talking and holding my hand and looking into my eyes. Yes, there is so much joy and richness and beauty, but that's not why I have kids. It's not why I got married. So why do we pray? To get what we want? Sure. But it's not just either or. It's both and inclusive to the nth degree. Why do we pray? Yes, to get what we want, but we also pray because God is good. We also pray and offer our souls and our space because God rescues, because God saves. Yes, because God redeems, but also simply because God is there for the having. There's relationship to enter into. There's fullness and wholeness to be had only in his presence. Why do we pray? Because when life, love, and happiness is dead and gone, God is there with resurrection. As I mentioned in the beginning, the impetus for Jesus' story here in Luke 18 is actually a question drawn from in Luke 17. Being asked by the Pharisees, verse 20 of chapter 17, when the kingdom of God would come, And they're talking about when is this going to happen? What's the season going to look like? And Jesus goes on this diatribe and tells a couple different stories. And again, the kingdom of God is not a place. It's a set of circumstance. It's an economy, a way of being, how to interact with him and how to be with others. And upon that question, Jesus tells this story in Luke chapter 18. And I would suggest he gives us the tool of persistence. And and interestingly enough, and I haven't gotten to it yet, but in verse eight, he kind of lands it with this awkward finality. I tell you, he, the God and the judge, and he's putting all these things together, will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? That moment right at the end is like, wait, wait, son of man coming? 
he inserts in the, at the end of this parable, Jesus all of a sudden just tosses in, and the world's gonna end. He just throws in apocalypse. <laughs> it feels cantankerous, it feels kind of awkward. And it's supposed to be because it's meant to be an alarm. Jesus is not necessarily speaking to the time, space, season, moment, bam, this is all gonna come to end. It's all gonna unravel. There's gonna be a coming and the son of man. No, he's telling a story. And in this moment, he's sounding the alarm. Anytime apocalypse is inserted in one of Jesus' parables, he's not giving us clues about when the alarm is gonna go off. He's using an alarm. He's using it as a common effect or filter. It adds immediacy. It adds urgency. It adds palpability to the moment. In the same way, when we as spouses have conversations and we use terrible words like, you never, you always. Anybody who has the healthy soul space to ask the question, always? Do I really always say that? Do I really never do that? Well, no, but yeah, because we add that for added impact. We want it to land. And so Jesus hurls this apocalyptic notion because he wants it to land. When we have an end game, when we've got a thing or or an enemy, for lack of a better example, we go. (laughs) We work, we, we do, we pray, we do all these things. But what about when we don't have those things or things like those things? Enter Jesus' illustrating prayer outfitted with the thick theme of persistence. He tells us a story about a widow who comes back again and again and again and again. He depicts a judge who is unrighteous and wicked and does not fear God nor man. He's not a good guy. It's not the way it should be. In fact, those laws the judge is supposed to enforce are there for her benefit, for his benefit, for them to be able to enter into life and circumstance in a good, godly, productive, and fruit-filled way. And even though the construct is there, it's not fruitful, it's not happening. Does that sound anything like our world today? And Jesus says, but she keeps coming. And the judge says, because she's bothering me, because she keeps coming, I'll yield, there will be fruit. Prayer, I would suggest to you, to me, to all of us. And let me be very clear, I am not good at this. I tend to do more than I pray. I tend to worry more than I submit to God. This is, I think, very natural human responses. But I will say this, I know that prayer is not an upgrade. Prayer is not an advanced level course. It's standard issue for all of us as we walk in the ways of Jesus. As we're made in the image of God, we are also made to have that intimacy with him because we want something for sure, because we need everything, absolutely. Because we just have to know him, we get to know him and we want him to know us, yes. So let me leave you with this benediction. May we pray. May we cease doing, speak freely, listen intently, and settle in with the silence that accompanies this holy activity. And may we remember that with Jesus, it only gets better.